This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Adidas and the all-new line of Tarek's outdoor gear. I think it is the best kept secret that um, Adidas has also an outdoor department. This is Christian Zwinger, outdoor design director at Adidas, and a man with a fairly substantial cold. You hear my voice is a little bit, is a little bit dark. But we're going to talk with him anyway, because a few years ago, Adidas started a big push to make their outdoor department a lot more friendly to the outdoors. Cut down on wasted material, cut down on water usage during the manufacturing process. And they did. But Adidas is also making more fundamental changes. They're changing the design of their shoes to make them less resource intensive to produce. And that is changing the aesthetic. And it looks very intuitive. So you're looking at the product and you have already the feeling, ah, okay, that is different to everything I've seen before. The first thing they did on their running and hiking shoes was refine the placement of the reinforcements and abrasion resistance. Some of those choices were to cut down on weight, but they also made the shoes last longer. Make a product that has a longer lifespan or a longer life cycle. It is already environmental friendly. The second thing they did was they started looking closely at which colors they made shoes in. Because it turns out that different colors require different amounts of energy to produce. And the most efficient thing was to just leave the materials in their natural state. We don't need a lot of decoration on the products. The right coloration or even no color at all is then the most beautiful thing. When I got on the phone with Christian, this is not what I thought he was going to talk about. But he says Adidas has a whole department analyzing the environmental impact of all their different products. And this stuff adds up. And whenever we have the feeling that we are having an additional benefit, it is super cool because it is just like this natural fuel that is intensifying the interest in these sustainable ideas. For more on Adidas outdoor products, go to adidas.com slash Terex. That's T-E-R-R-E-X. From Outside Magazine and PRX, these are Dispatches. Stories from our writers in the field. If you're not a runner, you might not know what a profound impact running can have on your life. Not just your mind and body, your life. Running makes you feel good. It makes you healthier, happier. It's also an amazing way to bond with other people, create a community. Knox Robinson has had great success harnessing the benefits of running for his community in New York. He sat down recently with writer James Mills. The city of New York has a thriving and vibrant running scene. Every day of the week, all year long, people are running around the Big Apple. There are countless groups training for 10Ks and other events, including the New York City Marathon, one of the premier distance events in the world. So yeah, it's safe to say that people there have plenty of options when it comes to getting their run on. One big reason for this is because of New York City characters like Knox Robinson. He believes that running is a lot more than just an athletic pursuit. Knox sees running as a way to explore the human condition through the body, mind, and spirit. As a co-founder of the running club Black Roses NYC, he's creating a lifestyle of daily exercise in order to help his members become better versions of themselves. Born and raised in Southern California, Knox was inspired by his father to take up running at an early age. When his family moved to upstate New York while he was in high school, Knox ran track and cross country, though he's the slowest kid on the team. But he got faster. In college, he spent a few seasons running on the Wake Forest University cross-country team, but eventually gave up the sport altogether, trading running for the New York City rap and hip-hop scene. 
But with the birth of his son in 2003, he had a renewed interest in health and fitness. He started running again. And in 2012, he co-founded Black Roses NYC, a membership-based running collective firmly grounded in the urban street culture of New York City. On a recent visit there, I sat down with Knox to talk about his long relationship with running and how he defines his vision of a more inclusive running community. Growing up, uh, my father was, you know, one of those acolytes in uh, the running boom of the late 70s and the early 80s. Nylon short shorts and the mesh vests and, you know, would go out and, and battle his best friends in a 10K or a half marathon on occasion on the weekend. And, you know, I'm there as a kid. And when, you know, when my dad didn't win, I'm like distraught. I'm crying, you know, like, ah. Um, but again, it was pure lifestyle. And I think for me to have seen that growing up, um, you know, in, in the context of the running boom in Southern California, that just painted a picture for me of what I thought life was in so far as much as, you know, having cacti outside your window and, you know, just camping out of a Nissan station wagon in the Anzabrego desert, you know, like coyotes, like circling around your, your, uh, your tent in the morning, you know? So there were these experiences, not only with running, but with the natural world that I took, um, for granted and, and only later in life do you kind of realize that obviously like not everyone had the same experience. Watching his dad train and race, Knox grew up believing that running was just something that you do, one of the tenets of a man's life. Yeah. Still, he only ran with his dad once when he was 11 years old after the family had relocated to upstate New York. Was, uh, with my dad, New Year's Day, 1990. It was snow in Buffalo in our town and I guess we may have ran like two two and a half miles I think I had these Bo Jackson Nikes on like and you know you'd be trying to run in Bo Jackson Nikes and like the snow would just like caking up and it's so cold I was sweatsuit on and everything and I just remember struggling around the block with my dad and his running buddy and then sprinting up the block at the end and feeling like I had like set the world on fire um so yeah it's funny that like that memory is is also super like present in my mind, but yeah, it was pretty much the only time I ever ran with my dad. As a teenager, Knox felt like running was some sort of horrific rite of passage. Under miserable conditions and cold, wet weather, he wondered if it was something that kids should even be allowed to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I when, you know, thinking about my first race, it's great you can remember it, but it's also you wish you could forget it. This race, we had just moved to, to New York State, to Buffalo, New York, it was seventh grade. It was a cross-country race in my new school. And it was gray. It was cold. It was raining in a park. And, like, there was, like, sheets of water all over this park. And it was so cold. And I was running it, and I couldn't understand how it was allowed. I didn't understand how, even if your parents signed a permission form, I didn't understand how kids were allowed to go and run in two feet of like ice cold water in the mud with very little supervision in the rain. I mean, it, it was like, it really bordered on child abuse, cross country, running. But it didn't take long for Knox to realize that running had much more to offer than just physical exercise. Even as a kid steeped in the sport, he could see beyond the finishing line of the medals. For Knox, running has always been about culture. Over time, he came to realize that running provides an opportunity to lead a life of personal freedom. 
He calls running a profoundly black experience. That's a great expression, to be profoundly black. What's profoundly black about running? Um, well, it started in Africa. <laughs> um, you know, but also uh, all through the the modern day history of running, there are examples of, you know, what, what Kanye and, and Jay, um, you know, phrased as black excellence, um, whether it's Wilma Rudolph or Jesse Owens or, you know, Ted Corbett, um, to say nothing of like the Kenyan and the Ethiopian dominance uh, in, in the distances in the second half of the 20th century. So all the way along, there was sort of examples of um, that excellence, excellence in like a sophisticated, mid-century, modern, cool way. Um, and and on that level, too, when you look at the popular literature from running um, in the 70s on all the, the pulp kind of like training manuals, every other one has like a black dude on the cover. Like the esoteric meditation guide, you know, beyond running that was published by the Esalen Institute. They put a black dude on the cover, you know, like there was like, a, you know, Runner's World or these other sort of publishing houses were putting out, you know, little chapbooks. And, and the one around my house was called Running With Style. And it was like this super amazing graphic cover. And it had just like a brother looking fly on like a psychedelic background. And I guess that probably speaks more to like my interior life than, you know, anything else. Looking fly and or trying to look fly with a vaguely psychedelic background. <laughs> so I have to assume then that it was a natural thing for you to go into high school and take up track and field. Um. That would be an assumption <laughs> because I'm not really blessed with athletic talent. So I could talk all this about like running this and that and Jesse Owens. But when it came time to actually do it, I was slow. You know what I mean? I was like the slowest kid on the team. I was definitely running the hurdles like it was like the pole vault taking my time. Um, and so I migrated to the distance events and the longest, slowest distance events, the two mile. Um, always the last guy to finish. My mom still to this day jokes that like the team would be on the bus with the motor running, waiting for me to finish. They, they were turning the lights out on me as I was completing the race. And even then I would fall down and cry and like pass out. Like it was like the greatest, you know, effort <laughs> to, to run eight laps on the track. Knox was running as hard and as fast as he could, but he didn't seem to be getting any faster. Then, after one really miserable race, he met a coach and a team that helped him find another gear. Long story short, I had rock bottom, finished last in a race in the rain, and like was all cut up and bloody. And this coach of these like bad boy dudes from another school knew I was like a hard worker, and asked me to come out and train with these guys. These are like the fastest runners in New York State, but you know, came from like tough backgrounds. <laughs> um, and I just spent a summer running with these guys in the woods and it totally changed what I thought was possible from running, what I thought was possible for myself. Um, I also picked up bad habits <laughs> and bad behaviors from these guys, but also it made me um, a, a infinitely better runner. At the end of the season, the cross country season, I was just like running stride for stride with these guys effortlessly um, in a way that, you know, I never could have imagined. 
Knox ran track for about a year and a half at Wake Forest. Though he considered himself fairly average, he competed alongside elite Division I racers. He also studied English with a minor in East Asian languages and literature. After graduation, he made his way to New York City where he hoped to become a spoken word poet. Instead, he scored a job at a museum, thanks to some help from none other than Maya Angelou. Um, I got um, a, a sort of a, a crazy job working at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, which is the largest repository of Africana materials in the world. Um, I was hired, I studied in, in school, I studied with Maya Angelou. And Dr. Angelou, I went and asked Dr. Angelou for like help getting a job in New York. From her desk, she calls up the director of the museum and like tells him to hire me. Of course, what's he going to say? So I show up on the first day of work, and they didn't have anything for me to do. So I kind of just like sat at this desk for a year um, and just read archival material, read unpublished poetry from Langston Hughes and Amir Baraka and Hakim Adabuti and just kind of like had a deep dive into not only... Um, the black culture that we sort of know and love, but also third stream black culture, uh, you might call it, that I, that I wasn't really aware of. And at the same time, New York City was preparing to celebrate its 100th anniversary as a city. And so there was a little project work done around looking at um, 100 years of black life, not only in Manhattan or in Harlem, as, as we popularly imagine it, but also in the outer boroughs in Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island. Uh, and so it was really sort of... Uh, an early induction into the richness of, of New York City, the greatest city on the planet. Knox did some traveling in China, then returned to New York and made his way into the music industry, working with rap artists, many of them from Africa. I managed a few artists. I managed um, you know, a rapper from, from Flatbush in Brooklyn. I worked with a, a eight-piece cosmic jazz ensemble from the south side of Chicago um, that was sort of like contemporary inheritors of Sun Ra's tradition, again, more third stream blackness. And then um, I worked with this incredibly amazing prog rock, uh, radiohead uh, inflected indie band from Soweto known as Blackjacks in, in South Africa. So there was a lot of, there was like a years just spent sort of on the road in, you know, on tour, jumping on and off planes and kind of getting thrown out of bars. <laughs> Um, you know, white-knuckling my way, way, way through my 30s for sure. What were you hoping to accomplish with this? You know, by the time I had reached the end of my 20s, I had accomplished maybe 80% of, like, my life goals. And so to, like, wash up on the shores of your 30s, having done a lot of shit, um, you kind of don't know where to go next. So I hit the bar <laughs> and kind of stayed there. Um it definitely was um, a little bit of soul searching, you know, and if anything, um, getting back into running was a way to kind of connect back to the person I had been so long before. Knox never expected to return to running, and when he did, it wasn't a gradual thing. The day after his son was born, he felt compelled to lace up his shoes and head out. He hasn't stopped since. Being um, on hand to witness the birth of my son um, X number of years ago, uh, was a really transfigurative experience to see, you know, here we're walking around dragging our knuckles and wringing our hands about, you know, how bad the state of the world is. And then when you watch another member of our species 
demanding a place in the human community, it can be a really profound experience, right? So, um, yeah, to watch my son come into the world with a singular unity of, of, of body, mind, and spirit made me reflect on, you know, the last time I had done that. When was the last time I had a similar unified field of, of that much focus? And the only thing I could think of was when I used to be a runner and had been back in college. And so I started running the very next day, one loop around the park, two loops around the park. And um, unfortunately, that led to marathoning pretty quickly. <laughs> Not in like not in like 26 days, not like 26 loops around the park. I'm running a marathon, but you know, I could have kept it to 5Ks and just been cool. But I took it too far, and now I'm in too deep. <laughs> well, I, I would imagine Knox wanted to see where running might take him and how far. Over time, he realized that a running club could bring together his interests in music, art, philosophy, and sport. He could build a community of like-minded runners. Uh, I founded Black Roses NYC. Um, in at, at the very end of 2012, and, and then kind of got started in the winter of, you know, January of 2013. Um, I started with another woman here in New York City, and and we kind of came out of this um, another running group that was sort of the progenitor of this um, amazing renaissance of urban running that we're seeing right now. Um, after a while, um, there was so much excitement. And then at the dawn of social media or like social media kind of getting underway, there were so many questions about, does this work out, kind of deliver these gains and what should I eat before a race? And so I guess I found myself delivering the, the little running experience that I had uh, to like this community um, and then formalized it with a, a small membership base group that, that is Black Roses today. And where does the name come from? comes from um, a dance hall reggae song by Barrington Levy, a, like a digital dance hall song that was, it's a classic, uh, super popular in the dance halls of Kingston, Jamaica, and, and New York, and, 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 uh, and other sort of Caribbean communities around the world. Um, and it, it speaks about the rarest flower in the garden uh, that needs care, but also um, is so rare that you probably almost never see it. You know, so uh, it sort of has a mystical, magical sort of element to it. How much of what Black Roses Running does helps to facilitate a person's interest in a different form of expression physically in a city like New York? Um, I, I can't. I can't answer that because I'm on the inside of it. But I do hope that. Are running whether we're just training or when we are, you know, running on a on a larger level on a bigger stage like the New York City Marathon or when we're running like in our own communities. I do hope that um, we are projecting images of uh, vitality and joy and happiness and togetherness um, in a way that we don't always see. When you see like you know, some brothers and sisters jogging through your neighborhood, I like to hope it it, it kind of sparks the imagination of, of folks to think, you know, what could be possible for themselves, you know? I mean, when you think about uh, this brother, Elliot Kipchoge from Kenya, uh, making an attempt to do the impossible, what so many said was impossible, run, break two hours in the marathon last year. Um, 
yeah, he came up short one second per mile, 25 seconds or something. But um, I was there on site in Italy when he did it at this Formula One racetrack. And man, it was amazing to watch. But when he crossed the line, the first thing I thought of was, what are my own limitations? What am I doing that's holding me back? What, what am I doing to hold myself back from like achieving my dreams? And it doesn't even really have all that much to do with running, maybe, you know, but like, what about, uh, you know, my aspirations as a writer? What about, you know, my aspirations to be a father or a husband or a good son or a good brother, um, a good leader of Black Roses NYC? What are, what are my own limitations and how can I break through those barriers to be a fuller human being? Mm. Now, one of the things that is a, a part of uh, Black Roses running, at least in terms of what I understand, is that you're also trying to create an environment of, of black health, you know, not just physical health, but also mental health. Um, speak just a bit about how um, that experience um, in community building around um, health and wellness is a, is a part of Black Roses community and, and its message. It's just going to be there uh, by design. Um, you know, we're not like a, we're not a black running group, you know, um, but um, it is a running group founded by a black dude. <laughs> um, and and so those politics and those ethics and, and that aesthetic is going to be there. Um, there are a lot of black folks in the group. There are a lot of folks from all different backgrounds. But when you think about the centrality of the urban experience, when you think about the primacy of, of the black experience, and indeed also I should say here that uh, the centrality of women's experience in our group, um, these are sort of um, the essential uh, elements that, that sort of form, you know, the political the political rock, the bedrock of our, of our group. And so um, there's this really strong woman in our group, one of our co-captains from Flatbush in Brooklyn. And, and there's this photo of the two of us last year before we head out on a Boston trading run. And I'm tying my shoes and she's putting on gloves and we're just like smiling or laughing and it just catches this mid-conversation. There's just not like a photo like that. Just the image of like, a black man and a black woman as friends engaged in that pursuit, I'm super down to share that. You know, so much of what we do as human beings, and obviously we can just see on a global stage, it's unspeakable. Like we're just doing terrible things, you know, to ourselves, to each other. Um, and uh, I think that Something there in running when we could come together and do it together and and resolve some of that and uh, perhaps absolve ourselves of some of that is positive. And, and so when I connect like with uh, the squad and we go out and train to sort of become better versions of ourselves, um, I think that's that's part of um, it's inedible. You can't eat it. You can't make no money off it. Um, but I think that that's, uh, it's actually the crucial work to be done uh, for our community and our species right now. That's Knox Robinson talking with James Mills. This piece was produced by James and Michael Roberts. It was brought to you by Adidas. The Outside Podcast is a production of PRX and Outside Magazine. 
We'll be back next week.